0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Walter Olson. I'm a senior fellow at Cato's uh, Robert M. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And we are here today with two uh, uh, notable authors to discuss uh, sex offender registry laws. Uh, Sex offender registry laws are, uh, I believe, still immensely popular with public opinion uh, and have, in their broad outlines, uh, been upheld by the courts. And they are easy to forget about for most of the rest of us. Uh, In recent years, however, there are signs that the courts are taking a closer look at some of their operations. Uh, Last year in Packingham versus North Carolina, the US Supreme Court unanimously, uh, eight to zero, uh, struck down a North Carolina law uh, directing sex offender registries to go back to uh, prison, to to go back to prison if they um, dared to use social media. Uh, The year before that, The court unanimously, with Samuel Alito writing, uh, ruled that uh, (coughs) the law could not really mean it when it instructed uh, Kansas sexual offenders to uh, appear in person in the state of Kansas to notify the state within three three days after leaving the state. Uh, And the court has let stand numerous opinions from Missouri, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and elsewhere, uh, striking down aspects of the sex offender registry system as retroactive, uh, improper with laws that are punitive, as this at least sometimes is, uh, laws uh, uh, controlling where offenders may live, uh, where they can go to church, whether they can see their own children, and many other topics. So to discuss this issue, we have with us um, two authors who have been on Cato, Cato podiums before. Uh, Lenora Skenazy is best known for a completely different issue. Uh, She is the author uh, who founded the Free Range Kids movement. And I have a triumph to report that you have almost certainly not read about uh, in the last day, which is that uh, for months now, uh, Lenora Skenazy has been campaigning for a Free Range Kid law, which would uh, instruct police not to arrest me out this will sound crazy not to arrest parents who let their kids walk outside. The, there have been a, a series of uh, much publicized cases one from near here in Silver Spring Maryland in which letting kids walk to school or walk to the park has resulted in a police or a CPS visit to the parents even though no one was hurt and the kids are standing there saying I know the way to the park and home. So the state of Utah Uh, uh, will now become, if its governor signs the measure, uh, the first state to enact a free-range kids law protecting parents' and kids' rights in this case, yes. Um, And and our speaker today um, uh, was instrumental in making that happen. Uh, I also uh, highly recommend that you look up her earlier appearance, in which I was also the moderator, in which she discussed... Here at Cato, Free Range Kids Ideas, it is probably my personal favorite of all of the events I've hosted here. And it certainly had the audience uh, laughing and in a a merrier mood than uh, than almost any of the others. To comment on her remarks, we have Dara Lind, uh, a senior reporter at Vox.com. Uh, who specializes in immigration and criminal justice issues, and who wrote a year or two back on the registry system, uh, raising a lot of interesting questions, with which I hope we hear more uh, this afternoon. So um, uh, to begin, Lenora Eskenazi.
1: All right, tell me this sounds good, yes? Good. Okay. First of all, thank you, Walter. What Walter neglected to say, hi, Dara, about our last encounter here was that he got to play my (laughs) three-year-old and we hugged on stage um, after I learned how to hug from Parents Magazine, which actually had an article on how you hug your child with both arms with chests touching. They actually explained that. Anyways, point is uh, the parenting world is insane, Um, but that, of course, is not what I'm here to talk about today. I'm here to talk about something a lot more serious. So this isn't going to be the fun one. I'm sorry uh, you missed it. you got to go look it up. So um, I am Lenore Skenazy, founder of Free Range Kids, and our mission statement is fighting the belief that our kids are in constant danger from creeps, kidnapping, germs, grades, flashers, frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, men, sleepovers, and or the perils of a non-organic grape, okay? So in other words, in most of my life, I am fighting for the rights of kids to have an old-fashioned, stay out till the streetlights come on, mom's going to ring the bell, it's dinner time kind of childhood. I fight for kids, and that's what that law was now in in Utah. Kids can actually go outside and their parents won't get arrested. So (laughs) why am I here today to talk to you about uh, those scary dots on a map? that you can look up. Uh, They are dots that maybe keep parents from sending their children outside to play or to walk to school because those are the dots that represent sex offenders. And so many times when I ask parents, why aren't they letting their kids play or have an old-fashioned childhood? After all, crime is down, blah, blah, blah. I can cite the statistics. They say, there's just too many creeps these days. Have you heard that? Everybody's heard that, right? So I'm going to talk about a creep I met. And also, normally I get my free-range kids speech, which I know by heart. I don't know this one by heart, so I'm going to keep looking at my notes. Sorry. Um, so the creep I met called me out of the... <laughs> not a creep. Uh, but the guy I met on the phone called me out of the blue and introduced himself as... A sex offender, which was the first call, uh, actually of many, uh, that I had gotten like that. And it wasn't weird. It wasn't like there was heavy breathing or anything. Um, he just wanted to introduce himself. His name was Josh Gravens, 25 years old. Everybody's nodding. He's like the, the poster boy for sex offenders. Um, he is. Uh, post, so he's 25 years old. He was calling from Dallas, Texas. So here's what happened. When Josh was 12, he touched his sister's vagina twice, which is... Gross, right? She was eight. Uh, His mom, I mean, his sister told his mom, and their mom called a counseling center, and the counselor, I think as mandated by law, reported this to the police, and it was just a few days later that the cops came to Josh's house and arrested him for child molestation. When a victim is that young, eight years old, it's called aggravated sexual assault, whether or not there was any violence, um, which there wasn't. So Josh got three and a half years in juvenile detention, uh, which is the term we use for kitty prison. And there were actually some good things about him going to prison, believe it or not. Until then, Josh had been homeschooled by a mom who basically slept all day. So he hadn't learned how to read. He was illiterate. And in prison, they taught him how to read. Uh, in fact, it turned out he was so hungry to learn that his teacher also ended up teaching him her native language, which was Russian. So yeah, so he had a Russian lady teaching English. Uh, So prison wasn't all bad. Uh, Josh's sister, for instance, who did stay at home, is um, unable to read to this day. But because Josh and everyone else in his program was labeled officially a sex offender, he got the therapy originally designed for, or fantasized and dreamed up for, actual child rapists. so, so the therapist could demand that all the kids confess the other children that they'd raped. Like, like, start listing your crimes. Tell us about all the other children you raped. And if you said you, know, you hadn't done anything else, then you were in denial. Right. So that made the therapist angry. And all the other kids would jeer at you and taunt you. So eventually, Josh, like everybody else there, started making up other crimes. Horrible rapes. Oh, yeah, there was that one and that one, but then as part of the therapy They had to act out the rapes in front of all the other kids. Everybody's sitting in a circle. It's group therapy Show us how you raped the baby, okay? It's like Maury Povich except as therapy and aside from the embarrassment and horror about all those made-up crimes They went on your permanent record as confessions, right? So if you said you didn't commit any other crimes, then you were in denial. If you said you did, it proved you were a serial predator. And if later you said you made them up, that just proved you're a liar and good luck getting probation, right? Because clearly you're a psychopath. So that was therapy, okay? At night, Josh would console himself by reading anything that he could get his hands on in prison. And, you know, he'd just learned to read, but he was this really smart kid. And after a while, Josh was reading Harry Potter. Um, But a few bunks away, he said, he'd see some of the other kids. And some of these inmates were working their way through Dr. Seuss. Okay? And others were curled up crying for their mothers. These were the scary juvenile sex offenders in Texas prison. And some of them, like Josh, were virgins. What many people don't know and what shocked me is some of you will know this because I know some of your reporters out here who work in this field. But do you know what the most common age is of people on the sex offender registry for molesting children? Because you actually can get on the sex offender registry bizarrely enough for not having um, molested children. But what is the age of the most people on the registry? What age has the most people? Do you know? It's fourteen. It's fourteen. Yes, most people they think. For some reason, 39 always comes up, or 52. I think it's because it's decks of cards. But anyways, it's 14, because young people have sex with other young people, and that's criminal. Uh, Young people are also, uh, there's a technical term for it, um, idiots. They're often idiots, right? Anybody ever done anything stupid as a young teenager? Maybe one or two of you? You, you you're, you're, The very prim and proper lady is nodding along. I like that. Right, scarf lady, fellow scarf lady. OK, so here's uh, what happened a few years ago in New Jersey. Two 14-year-old boys pulled down their pants and sat on the faces, this is stupid and gross, of two 12-year-old boys. OK, uh, it's disgusting and gross. I don't, I don't know of any girls who have ever done that. Um, but as one of the boys later explained to the judge, we were just trying to be funny. But now um, they're on the sex offender registry for life because it was genital contact with a minor. Okay, So right now, they're probably about 18 now. So they have maybe another 50 years to go on the sex offender registry with all all that that entails. But back to Josh. Okay, by age 16, Josh was out of prison. He finished high school, he got into college, but he was still on the registry. And when a local news team discovered that a student on campus was a sex offender, they did a story. You know, wow, that's red meat cup. Next is your child safe, sex offender on campus of whatever Texas University it was. So they did a story. And then the kids on campus saw it and everybody started talking about it. So they started driving by Josh's dorm and they would scream at him and they threw things. And then one night they stuck a sheet of paper under his door saying what they were going to do to him if they could get him. And that was they were going to hang him upside down by his ankles and cut off his balls. So Josh still had a month there. I don't know why his... Parents couldn't come and get him, but he still had a month to go. And what he did is he holed up in his room, and he lived on ramen and tea. And at 3 in the morning, he would go down the hall to go to the bathroom and then run back, but he could never take a shower because that was too scary. So he just sort of would risk his life to go to the bathroom and then come back. Um, And he survived. But he left college after that and never returned. But a couple years later, he decided that he didn't want to live in the shadows anymore. His sister had long since forgiven him, and he wanted to show the world what a sex offender, at least one sex offender, looked like, and how the system worked. So that's when he started calling uh, reporters, and that included me. And we chatted a couple times on the phone, and when I was headed down to Dallas, he invited me to come watch him register, which I thought sounded well, I have to say, it actually sounded kind of intriguing, almost cool. I'm a reporter, right, at heart, uh, until I lost my job. But anyways, it did sound fun, uh, which is why I'm already um, dealing with <laughs> Darren talking about freelance opportunities box. But anyways, so I was a reporter then, and I said, yeah, let me go see you register, because a registrant has to go and register. What does that entail? So on a hot afternoon uh, in July in Dallas, which I know is every afternoon in July in Dallas, we went to the registry, which is like, um, hi, just take a seat. Thanks for coming. We went to the registry, which is like the principal's office or a doctor's waiting room. There's just a whole bunch of guys, they're all guys, sitting around. Um, but I barely had time to talk to the young man who was sitting next to me. And I just said, let me guess, you're here because you were 17 and had sex with a 14-year-old. I nailed it. That's literally why he was there. Um, so that, is, that was his crime, consensual teen sex. And for that, he hadn't been sent to jail. He'd been placed in a group home which he said was so much like jail that he hated it, that he ran away, and for that, he got six years in real prison. So he was out now, he had the thing around his ankle, the, the beeper thing, and um, that was it, a handsome man. Anyways, uh, I was talking to him, and then suddenly Josh was called in to the registry office, and after stating his name and his new address, because he'd moved a week earlier, um, a detective came up to him and said, Josh Gravens, yes, you're under arrest. And they put him in handcuffs, and they put him in the van, um, and he was sent off to jail. Because being on the registry comes with a whole giant list of rules. Somebody said there's 72. Um, And one of them is you must alert the registry within a week to any changes in your life. And that includes if you change your job, if you change your email address, if you change your hairstyle, you know, God forbid, um, if you get a new tattoo or if you get a new apartment. Well, Josh had just moved the Wednesday before, and this was a Wednesday that he was registering. Sometimes it's not even open every day, but in Dallas it is. So he was registering his new address. So that made it eight days from Wednesday to Wednesday, if you count the day that he moved out, or seven, if you count it like, okay, as of Thursday, he was at his new address full time. But for this violation, Josh was facing a possible sentence of guess. Huh. (laughs) not from Dallas, Um, (laughs) he was facing a possible sentence of 25 years in prison, because every technical violation committed while on the registry is is treated like it's a new sex crime. Because you're a sex offender, why would you be doing this? You must be trying to elude the police, or you must be trying to lure a victim. So uh, if you commit a crime while registering, it's, it's committed, it's Considered a sex crime and and so this was as if Josh had raped an eight-year-old for which he would get 25 years but we're gonna leave Josh for a minute because I Want to discuss the broader issue of sex offenders because not every sex offender is a cuddly teddy bear like Josh some have committed horrible horrible crimes and when I think about what they've done it makes me sort of weak with upsetness, whatever the word is, just, you know, there, there, are, there are terrible crimes that have been committed, um, crimes that hurt children, for real, and often for a long time. So shouldn't we just do a better job of deciding who gets on the registry, right? We'll take the Joshes off, and we'll keep the Sanduskys on it. Doesn't that make sense? If it's tough for the, you know, for the real child rapists, who cares, right? They're child rapists. And part of me thinks, yeah, um, and then part of me thinks about this, this guy named Felix. He's a mover um, that we hired. Uh, he was not, not a sex offender, and he never was. Um, uh, and I met him because he was getting his degree at a college where my friend teaches, and he um, and he had a moving van and so we hired him and he was a great mover and he's lovely and if you come to New York and you need a mover, I can't imagine you're gonna to come to New York all of a sudden need a mover, but if you do, I would give you his number. And in fact, after he moved some stuff for me, I gave his number to a friend of mine, and she said, "Where did you meet him? He's so nice. He was so responsible. He really helped me." And then my husband needed some moving while I was out of town, and we were remodeling, and so he hired him. He said, "Oh my God, Felix dealt with all this horrible junk, and you know the the van turned out to be too small for this thing that he was moving. They had to, you know the horrors of moving." And um, he was just impressed by what a patient and resourceful mover Felix was. Um, and afterwards, my husband said, "How do we know him again?" And so I told him, I said, Felix is in a program for former prisoners who want to get a college education. My husband's like, yes. And I said, and, you know, so he did uh, 17 years in prison for murder. My husband's like, what? What? Murder? Yeah, yeah, he, he murdered a guy, um, which, is, which is who you get if you're married to me. You're just going to have some interesting experiences. But, um, but what I, the point is that I'm so glad that my husband got to know Felix, and so did my friend, without knowing his crime because he's not a murderer now. He's in his 40s, he's a good mover, he's calm, he listens to boring music on the radio, he obeys the traffic signals, he's a nice guy. Um, And he's not the crime that he committed a lifetime ago. So, murderers are allowed to go on with their lives after prison, so are drug dealers. We don't say bank robbers can't live within 1,000 feet of a bank because it's just too tempting. Um, Because once you've done your prison term and served your probation, the system says, okay, now it's time for you to become a regular part of society again. You're not going to be forever identified by the very worst thing you ever did, unless you committed a sex offense. So I want to pause here and have you think back on this is uncomfortable, but it'll be fast. Uh, on the worst thing you've ever done, you know, something that you are totally ashamed of, even if it's something you said to your mom, ghosting a girlfriend, cheating on a test, cheating on a spouse, um, something that you wish you hadn't done that you regret. And I'm going to give you a second to think. Okay. You don't have. It's it's not. not not a reality show, nobody has to stand up and say what they did, um, but the point is, imagine if that were out there in public for everyone to see first thing when they Google your name. Okay, now imagine making a postcard with this. This is what I did when I was whatever age and I, it was horrible and, you know, and here's a picture of me. And then having to put it in everyone's mailbox in your neighborhood because that's one thing that a lot of sex offenders are, re- are required to do, right? Give postcards throughout the neighborhood saying, this is me, I'm in your neighborhood, I'm the local monster, that's me. So it's not that anyone is pro-sex crime. But if that's what the sex offender registry is, if it's a way to make sure that anyone who ever committed a sex offense is identified in public as a monster, let's at least make sure it's keeping kids safer, that it's doing something valuable. Is it? Well, a lady tweeted to me the other day, because I can't stop tweeting about this topic, it is a well-established fact that sex criminals are impossible to rehabilitate. If that's so, OK, that's, that's real. Then identifying sex offenders is basic safety because they can't stop molesting kids. We should know who they are. So what is the actual rate of rapes and child molesting by people on the registry? How, what percentage of people on the registry go on to commit another sex offense, raping or molesting or something like that? What percentage do you think? And if you actually know, don't say it. But if you're guessing, guess. What percentage of people on the registry go on to commit a new sex offense?
2: One.
1: One. You're not supposed to guess low. You're supposed to guess high, and I'm going to say, no, actually, it's remarkably low. <laughs> who, who guessed one? You? Yeah. yeah. Are you like a law professor? No? <laughs> right? Are you a sex criminal? I want to ask. <laughs> you're not supposed to ever taking them off. No shame, okay? You get to grow up and go on. Uh, yeah, it's actually five. 5%, maybe 5.3%, which means that 95% of the people on the registry are not a threat, but they are taking time away, cop time away from the guys who pose a real threat to kids. In fact, one theory as to why J.C. Dugard wasn't found for those 17 years, she was the girls taken off the bus stop, you know, kept prisoner behind Garrido's house in California and bore the guy two children 17 years back there. One theory is why they didn't find her sooner is because in California where you have to be on the registry for life, um, if, no matter what you did, they, they had to knock on 100,000 people's doors every year. And they just, OK, anybody here? No. OK, great. And anybody here? No. OK, great. So um, it's possible that he became, he was allowed to continue this horrible crime because the, the cops assigned to sex crimes were so um, overburdened with the other 95%. So um, Georgia. The Georgia Sex Offender Registration Review Board did a study. We're talking Georgia, okay? Georgia is not Massachusetts, right? They're going to see, are these criminals really bad? Are we doing the right thing? So they looked at the 17,000 people on their registry, and they determined, like everybody else who does the actual study, about 5% posed were clearly dangerous, and 100 were what we call true predators, people actually compelled to rape children. That's a lot of numbers. But what it means is that 16,000 people in Georgia are being treated as very dangerous predators who aren't. And it means that even the sex offender review board knows that something is seriously out of whack. So if 16,000 out of 17,000 sex offenders are never going to reoffend, how did we get with this very scary list? And that's where you come in. We're going to play something the name of the topic today called, You May Be a Sex Offender If. And here's where I'd like some intern or possible Walter, my three-year-old himself, to pass out these cards to everybody.
0: Do we Don't... Have a Cato person here who can help me? Or...
1: All right. Everybody gets a blank card. Does it okay. color? It doesn't. Um, no, I just happen to have those in my drawer. I actually prefer white ones, which are more anonymous. But what can you do? Husband bought cheerful cards. Um, So depending on the state, you may be a sex offender if you played doctor as a kid, went to a prostitute, peed in public, streaked. Uh, you, You helper people might not know this. There was a thing in the 70s where people were taking off their clothes and streaking across public places like a... It sounds so crazy, I won't even explain it. It doesn't matter. If you know what streaking is, did you streak? Uh, If you flashed someone, if you had sex in high school, not in high school, (laughs) as a high schooler, right, that's a different story. Actually, one that I have reason today. But anyways, if you had sex in high school with your freshman girlfriend or boyfriend while you were a senior, okay, um, those are um, all the the things that could get you labeled sex offender. So I want you to just, does everybody have a pen? Because if not, I have a way of doing it without a pen. Everybody? Everybody has a pen? No. okay. So do this very subtly. I'm going to read through the list again. And if you could be a sex offender, just make a little tear in your card Yeah, how do you do that really subtly? It doesn't matter. You do it. Everybody's going to, trust me, there's a ton of you are sex offenders out there. You'll find out in a second. So if you played doctor as a kid, went to a prostitute, peed in public, streaked, which is running naked, uh, flashed someone or had sex when you were about 18 with a freshman who was like 14 or 15, do that Um, because those could get you labeled a sex offender. And then we'll have the nice non-streaking young people. Come and collect those cards, and, and I'll tally them later. Okay, because all those things, including all this consensual sex. Oh, and I meant to say, if you sexted, that that is for the non-streakers here. If you sexted somebody, uh, you could be a, um, a sex offender too. Like the like the two kids in Iowa. Oh no, the fourteen-year-old in Iowa who um, took a pic. She's facing sexual exploitation charges because she took um, sexy pictures of a minor. Um, And that was exploitation of a minor, except it was herself. So she is facing charges of being a sex offender for sexually exploiting herself. Um, So that's it. So can you go pick up the cards? Because I think people know by now if they are sex offenders or not. And actually, um, when I read this list to my husband, uh, it turned out that uh, I'm on like the wrong page here. But he, it turned out that he. he told me, which he hadn't told me before, that he had peed in public, which I know now it's live stream. Don't watch this, Joe. I didn't mean to say it, but um, Joe Coleman with a K. No, anyways, I didn't know that. But thank God our lives have turned out so different because he wasn't arrested and put on the sex offender registry for that stupid, uncouth, and sometimes desperate thing that guys do that we don't seem to do, uh, which is uh, peeing in public. OK. Um, that's it. So. Uh, while we're collecting the cards, I'm going to tell you about some other people on the list who might remind you of yourself or if you have a son. Zach Anderson met a girl on the app called Hot or Not. Okay? He was 19. She was 17. They met, had sex, went home. But the girl has epilepsy, which meant that when she wasn't home on time, her mother started getting worried. What if she hasn't taken her medicine now? The mom was so worried. Oy vey, She called the cops. And so they were there when the girl came home and they asked where she was and she told them. Don't let that happen to you. So she told them that he, oh, who'd you have sex with? How old, blah, 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 Zach Anderson, okay. So the cops turn around, go knock on Zach Anderson's door. Zachary Anderson, yes, did you have sex with this girl? Yeah, well, guess what? She's 14. It didn't matter that there was no way Zach could have known. You're not even allowed on the hot or not app, the stupid app. unless you're 17. But here's what the judge said. And of course, I'm going to ask Walter to read this in his judgiest voice. Speaking. Be the judge. This is the judge at Zach Anderson's trial for having sex once with the girl he thought was 17. Yeah.
0: Someone's <laughs> going to take this clip just of me saying this. Now, um, you you went online to use a fisherman's expression, trolling for women to meet and have sex with. That seems to be part of our culture now. Meat Hook up. Have sex. Sayonara. Totally inappropriate behavior. There is no excuse for this whatsoever.
1: Yeah, trolling for sex online. Can you imagine? Only Zach, right? He figured out something that nobody else in America has ever done. And for that, the judge was disgusted. How dare he go trolling for women online? He gave him three months in jail and 25 years on the sex offender registry which meant he had to move out of his house because sex offenders can't live near children, where children, any place near children congregate, like a zoo or a park or a school, daycare center. Um, Zach's family lived near a dock. <laughs> yeah, Oh, all children are always flocking to docks, especially in Indiana in the freezing winter. But anyways, he had to move out of his house. He wasn't allowed to use the computer or internet anymore because those were his crime tools, and that put a crimp in his plans since he was at junior college studying, criminal, uh, studying computer science. And he couldn't talk to anyone under age 17 except his brother. So that meant he could go to jail if he said, um, how's it going, to one of his brother's friends. He also had to be home every night by 8 and couldn't leave his house in the morning until 6. Cops could raid his house at any time without a warrant and look for evidence against him. Like a movie, you don't get to answer this question. What kind of movies were they looking for? Not him. Anybody else? What were they looking for that would have... What? Yeah, okay, this is like... The Cato Genius crowd. Yes, exactly. They were looking for like a Disney movie because that would prove that he was still a pedophile. Right? Even though he thought he had sex with a girl two years younger than him and he's not trolling for kids. But if he had, you know, Finding Dory, and that's it, you know, off to the clinker. So um, he happened to have parents. Zach, yeah, that's it. Crazy. You can get. You can go to jail again for the, for the G movie. But Zach happened to have parents who were, you know, shocked and appalled, but then became activists. And they had a t-shirt store, so they started printing up Justice for Zach t-shirts. And um, they told his story online, and eventually, um, through different networks, because they, they were calling so much attention to the story, it landed on the front page of the New York Times. Hallelujah. At which point, Zach finagled a new sentencing hearing, and now He's just on probation for two years. And actually, afterwards, if we have time, I could tell you about how probation ended up being, I'll tell you right now, it ended up being six months longer because he violated the terms of his probation. What did he do? What horrible thing did he do while on probation that he should have never done, this sex criminal? Huh? A speeding ticket. Speeding ticket. No, I don't even know if he's allowed to drive. Uh, no, he, he went online, not trolling for women, he went online and looked up a fish filter for his tank, and how to build a ramp, a skateboard ramp, in his basement. And because you have to have all these um, uh, polygraph tests once you're on the registry, when he went in, and they said, have you used the internet for anything other than schoolwork? You're only allowed to use it for schoolwork. And he went like, "Mm," you know, on Zoom. And they asked what it was, and it was those two things. And then they get all of his electronics, and they look, and there's the fish filter, and there's the skateboard ramp. And they gave him another six months. I can't remember what the woman said. It was something so punitive. But anyway, so that was that. So um, what I forgot to mention about Zach sentencing is that even the girl and her mom came to court and begged the judge, don't put him in jail. There's no way he could have known. The girl said, I'm just as guilty as he is. Um, But the judge didn't like kids hooking up. And judges and prosecutors hold all the power. And here's the deal. That same judge who sentenced Zach, who then ended up it ended up getting reversed, had earlier sentenced two other young men, 19-year-olds, for the exact same crime, and their stories did not land up on the front page of the New York Times, and they have 23 years to go on the registry. Okay. One more story? Can I tell another quick story? Okay. Okay. Golfer. I'll just tell it from memory. So this lady wrote to me because her husband had been in a golf tournament in Michigan. Michigan seems like a bad place. And... Um, After the end of the tournament, they had local high school kids washing off their clubs. And stupidly and boorishly, the dad took a $5 bill as a tip and stuffed it down the girl's shirt, which I think is awful. Um, But it ended up being the the girl complained to to the police and went to court. And what did the judge do? He said, you know, he realized this was stupid, and he didn't want to even have the guy miss any work, but he looks at the list, oh, thanks, he looks at the list of, you know, what is it, and it's, you know, it's sexual contact with a minor, she was 17, and he, too, is on the sex offender registry now for 25 years, and he got married, you know, he was married, now he has two little girls of his own, and he can't go to, to read to them at the preschool, he can't drop them off, but by the time they're graduating from high school, I don't think he's allowed on the high school grounds to watch them graduate either. And the justice system thinks that's no big deal. You see, officially the intent of the registry is community notification, right? Letting people know that they're living near an offender. The government, except in Michigan now, I think, does not rec- recognize that being on the sex offender, reg- for the most part, the governor- government doesn't recognize that being on the sex offender registry is punishment. It's just a safety measure. That's why they can increase the number of years a person is on the registry even after they've served their original time. So if you in states where you're originally given a 10-year sentence on the registry, you can be bumped up to 25 even after you've served your first nine years. And if you were given 25, you can be bumped up to life. That's part of the... Um, The Adam Walsh Act. But how did it get started? How did we get to the registry? Jacob Wetterling was a nine-year-old boy in small-town Minnesota who was kidnapped while riding his bike in 1989 and he was killed. It was such a shocking crime that it inspired the law that mandated that every state keep a sex offender registry, which is a list of guys that the police could look at if there was a crime committed in the neighborhood. Let's quickly review and make sure that it wasn't somebody on this list. So it was for their, their private use. Um, And it was actually, the the law was named for Jacob. It's the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children Act. Um, That was passed in 94. And then Megan's law was named for Megan Kanka, who was a New Jersey girl raped and murdered by her neighbor who was a sex offender. And that made the registry public. Um, The idea being that if you knew where the sex offenders lived, you could make your kids safe. Is it true? Is it making kids safer? Well, the state of New Jersey, which is where Megan was from, actually did a study and found there was no difference in the number of kids victimized before or after Megan's Law. It didn't move the needle. In the meantime, there was a study actually done right here in Washington, DC, that compared streets with a sex offender on them to streets without. And you're nodding, the lady with the scarf knows all. Um, And it made no difference, once again, whether there was a sex offender on the street or not. Didn't change the number of sex crimes. Why not? Well, because, oh my god, this is so out of order. I can't believe it. But here's the point. Here's why the registry didn't make any difference. Because the registry is, not, is a list of people who committed crimes, not people who are going to commit crimes. So the Public Sex Offender Registry doesn't make kids any safer. It's just an extra punishment of the people we love to hate. But once a sex offender law is on the books, it's hard to challenge because who's going to say, oh, I think they need less time, or oh, I love sex offenders. It's, it's, a, it's not a popular cause. So, uh, although one lady in Montana tried to do it, I'm starting to write go faster. So how did we get to the point where a 25-year sentence for Josh makes any sense, considering um, the, the nature of his crime? I'm I just trying to figure out, like, you know, where does 25 years fit in the history of sentencing? And so I looked at the Nuremberg trials, the, law, the, the trials of the Nazis, right, after World War II. And the top, tippy-top Nazis, I'm a tippy-top Nazi, um, they got executed. But the ones on the on the rung right below them, you know what they got? You know what Albert Speer got? Like, they were trying to think of a... a A harsh enough punishment that would send a message to the world that this was the worst crime on Earth. Albert Speer kept the war going for an extra year, killing millions of men, women, and children. So what did he get? What did the Nuremberg trial sentence him to? 20. 20, because nobody had ever heard of a sentence that long. It was unfathomable. And Josh was facing 25. So thank God, because of all of Josh's connections and his outreach, he got a good lawyer. And in the end, he ended up not having to go back to prison. But this is one of 860,000 stories, almost a million people on the registry. And in 13 states, once you're on it, you're on it for life. Okay, So if we like these laws the way they are, even though they're not making our kids any safer, Good, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let's keep adding people to that registry, thousands of them daily, and, and, and let's keep them on there for decades or for life. But there's one mom who's having second thoughts. Here's what she wrote. We have an intolerance for sexual violence, which I agree with, by the way, who doesn't. People want a singular solution, and the solution that's been sold to them over the years is lock them up and throw away the key. But we've cast such a broad net that we're catching a lot of juveniles who did something stupid or different types of offenders who just screwed up. Should they never be given a chance to turn their lives around? Well, that mom is Patty Wetterling. It was her son that the act was named for. And if she doesn't think these laws are working, maybe we should listen. Thank you very much. And I'll have one of you kids count the yeses and nos. Yeses are—you didn't just hand me back unused ones, right? These were all handed out,
3: right? This is a less, uh, crowd.
1: Well, we'll see. You're going to just count the ones. Uh, the 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 offenders are torn, as it were, violated. Okay, thanks.
3: So the uh, good news about talking, uh, speaking after Lenore is that I know that this is a Cato genius crowd, and know that after that talk, no one could possibly believe that the sex offender registry is currently construed as a good idea. Like that's all, you know, that's been settled. It's done. Um, I think that when thinking about something like the Sex Offender Registry that's been around for long enough that we can see the unintended consequences and that even the people who initially pushed for it are having second thoughts, it's worth thinking not just about how do we fix the problem that we created 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but what are the lessons that stop us from having this problem again, right? How do we keep from just fighting the last war in this? And so the question is, you know what? Where exactly did the sex offender registry go wrong? To answer that, you have to think about two fundamental questions: What is punishment for, and who gets to do it? The sex offender registry is a is, it has a very unique answer to both of those questions, right? It treats punishment as something that is for, in theory, incapacitating offenders, making it impossible for them to reoffend. Classically, you have four different Justifications for why someone, why society punishes someone. It's either punitiveness, just saying society thinks that what you did is bad and you should feel bad, deterrence, making you afraid to commit whatever offense again. Rehabilitation, making you you understand the error of your ways and resolve to live a moral life in accordance with the laws of society. And incapacitation, which is just making it straight up impossible for you to do, you know, to commit another wrong, even if you wanted to. In theory, prison is a classical example of incapacitation, right? You you are physically locked up, you're unable to victimize anyone. In practice, as we Know and are kind of beginning to come to terms with just warehousing people in prison doesn't prevent them from committing crimes, it just means that they're committing crimes out of sight and out of mind. But the sex offender registry is, in theory, this incapacitative device in the community that you know makes it impossible for a sex offender to reoffend because they're never allowed to be around children. So how could they possibly do anything? And the unique answer to the second is who gets to engage in that punishment? It's not just the responsibility of law enforcement to make sure that a sex offender is not engaged is not interacting with children that responsibility is also shifted onto the community that's why you have public you know maps with dots so that parents in the community can know that there is a sex offender around and can take it upon themselves to make sure that they are not victim, allowing their children to be victimized the way that That's not the way that it was discussed initially, right? The way that it's justified—it was justified in the 1980s and 1990s when the Wetterling Act, when you know the Megan's Laws were in vogue—is this more anthropological idea, right? This is the era of super predators. It's the era. It's you know just a decade after the Satanic Preschool Panic. There's an idea that there are monsters out there who are absolutely irredeemable and who are going to prey on the least vulnerable among us unless society steps in. That's how you get a world in which you can have these uncompromising punishments where there's there's no room for rehabilitation in a model where you're being followed for the rest of your life and everyone you interact with is being told that you're a sex offender. But that's okay and justifiable if you don't believe these people are redeemable to begin with. If you think that they're monsters, then the only thing you can do is try to put it on potential victims to arm themselves and protect themselves for, from being potentially victimized in future. That's not really the way we think about crime these days. Even, uh, you know, with the understanding that the people in this room and political opinion elites in general have a kind of less black and white view of crime and a less punitive view of crime than the public as a whole does right now, even the public as a whole is less likely to think about, you know, this kind of irredeemable super predator stereotype than it was 20, 25 years ago. It's something that we've kind of moved past as a society, sort of. Uh, and I'll get back to that later. But it's not, it's a model of who, you know, of what count, who counts as what kind of people commit crimes that is no longer in vogue. But it's also a model of what the most despicable crime is that the most despicable crime uses sex and uses sex to abuse power. And that's why it's particularly interesting that we're having this conversation right now in 2018. Because when I wrote the article that Walter alluded to about the registry, uh, I was doing so in response to the conversation publicly about the sentencing of Brock Turner, who's the Stanford, former Stanford student and athlete, who uh, was tried and sentenced to six months for what was not Convicted as, but was was popularly referred to as a rape of a woman behind a dumpster, uh, and whose sentence of six months got a lot of public attention. And the judge in California is currently facing a recall effort um, because of anger from the you know from the left, from a particular strain of the left, about how lightly Turner himself was sentenced. And this is. Turner, you know, in addition to that six-month sentence was put on the California Sex Offender Registry, which is to say he's on for life. And it's been interesting to see that so much of the conversation we have about the Sex Offender Registry not being well used right now has not necessarily percolated into what is essentially another broad cultural conversation about a wrong to society that is done when sex is used to enforce and manipulate power relations, which is the current conversation about sexual assault, manipulation, exploitation, and harassment. I'm not saying that we're in a position where there's going to be a Megan's Law for anyone who, who engages in sexual harassment or rape. I don't think that that's the, the right answer here. But I think that we need to think very carefully about what exactly the problem is with the sex offender registry as Lenore described it. Because it's some of the things that Lenore described are inherent in the sex offender registry being a tool of the state. right? That it's not, you can't think of a non-state punishment that's going to clap somebody in irons because they waited seven days instead of six to gauge a change of address. But some of these things are things that are non-state forms of punishment, like, abusing a college student because you know he's a sex offender, like being, you know, some of the obstacles in people getting employment or being able to find a place to live are being enforced by neighbors just as much as they're being enforced by the state. And usually in the, sec- in the context of the sex offender registry, this is seen as an added level of cruelty, that people who maybe never were going to reoffend, maybe weren't even engaging in offenses that the sex offender registry was designed for, but who certainly have no intention of offending right now, are being ostracized not only by the state, but by their fellow people, so that it, technically they're back in the community. But for all intents and purposes, they are still serving out the terms of their sentence In you know just as much as they would be if they were still formally being isolated in prison. Those are things that we can't necessarily prevent from happening just by getting rid of the sex offender registry. People are going to their non-state forms of social sanction exist, right? There are costs to people's reputations when people talk about wrongs they've done. There are ways that you can discover, you know, you can Google someone's name and find out something that they have done and make decisions based on your judgment of whether their past actions should influence the respect you give them in the future. That is not something that anyone sees as a problem inherently. right? No one is is talking about making it impossible to Google someone just in case you discover something bad that they've since moved beyond. We're talking about a much more difficult gradation of how powerful should social sanctions be, and how much should the possibility of rehabilitation count against the duty to protect other people who might be victimized when we talk about the the fear of a me too backlash a lot of the concern that's been raised is that people who aren't doing people who are repeat offenders are being treated the same as people who have only committed one offense that people aren't getting the chance to prove that they have or that they aren't the kind of people who would do something like that and that the centralization of information in the form of, say, the list of men in media that circulated, that launched a thousand think pieces, uh, in the form of these increasing, you know, investigative articles about. Con- often tracking down rumors that have existed in various industries for years and years, that those are going to follow around the people who are being named and make it impossible for them to either find continued professional success or to redeem themselves as human beings in the eyes of the public. This is the same conversation that the sex offender registry has launched among thoughtful people like Lenore, but entirely divorced from the context of the state. It's entirely a question about how are we as a community deciding that people should be punished for engaging in sex as a tool to abuse power? And when do we decide that the possibility that future people might be victimized and the ability to allow them to warn themselves and to change their own behavior so that they avoid the risk of coming into contact with someone who is abusive? When do we decide that that outweighs the possibility that someone will either see the error of their ways or will be able to clear their names entirely and prove that whatever they were being accused of is false? This is not an easy question. It is genuinely hard to, on the one hand, say, We should always wipe the slate clean and assume that someone is better than the worst thing that they have done, even if that means putting potentially vulnerable people potentially in harm's way to allow them to demonstrate that they've redeemed themselves. That's an instrumentalization of future victims, right? You would not actually say that the next person to sit on Harvey Weinstein's casting couch should know nothing about what he'd done because maybe this time he's gotten better. Clearly, there are people... there are people and cases in which the ability to warn victims, to engage in social sanctions, to make it clear that people who don't learn their lessons should be shunned from society, that is obviously valid in some cases. But what we've learned from the sex offender registry is that there are ways that that has has become a, it's metastasized into total social isolation and a control over someone's life that makes it impossible for them to to rehabilitate themselves, to reintegrate into society. And we we would be making a mistake if we understood the problem with the sex offender registry as solely a problem of state policy. What we've seen is that when sanctions are being shared between the state and non-state actors, that it gets into much more difficult questions of what we as a society are willing to do, and when we're willing to forgive someone. And I think that that is what we need to be sitting with, in addition to making sure that the sex offender registry of the last war is pared back or turned to a more reasonable purpose, to make sure that we're being deliberate about future social sanctions and making sure we're being consistent about whether we're trying to incapacitate people, deter them, or simply tell them that what they did was wrong. Thank you. Um, I'd like to
0: invite Lenora, either if she has any responses to what Dara said, or also if you've got anything to say about the cards which have now told their tale. Um, And after that, we will be Uh, opening the uh, event to questions and answers, but uh, anything?
1: I just sit here now? Yeah, or I, do- I feel like I can get closer to the mic here, which I like. Um, first of all, yay, Dara. So interesting. And I hadn't thought about it as state versus sort of citizen vigilanteism or whatever it is. So that was great. And the word metastasized is one I'm going to use all the time when we talk about the sex offender registry because it really has gone from, gee, maybe this would be good for cops after a crime and only after a crime to look at just case as a as a crime potential crime solving tool as opposed to something for the public to have in front of them and then to hate on everybody on that list and make it impossible for them to ever get better and also i always think that like the reason i did free range kids and the reason i'm doing like grow and the reason i do this is because i really do believe that there's something great for society when our first impulse is to give people the benefit of the doubt and to assume that they can. Grow and change. If they prove us wrong, so be it. But um, but to start from the opposite, which is assuming guilt and horribleness on the part of almost anyone, until so somehow they prove that they're not horrible anymore, which is like stop beating your wife, is um, is a bad way to live, and um, might explain why we have such high incarceration rates. Whatever. Um, but here's the interesting fact: here we are in a in a crowd of a certain age, right? Let's just say that. It's it's not the college students I talk to, and, um, and obviously this IQ level that we keep talking about. And yet, your results of sex offender or not are identical to the ones I've gotten all the other six times I've given this talk, which is how many of you say, no, 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 you wouldn't put me on any sex offender registry? It's eight. And the number of you who said, well, yeah, I'd be there, but for the grace of God. Um, 20. Okay? It's always at least two to one. It's always the majority of people just sitting there allowed to go on and live their lives could have been completely derailed if they had Played doctor like Josh with the sister or done a stupid thing like the golfer with the thing. You know, your life would be completely, or my husband peeing um, in public, uh, would be a very, very different life right now. You probably couldn't even be here if you were trying to come from another state because no state allows you to come in and you have to get permission from where you're leaving and the place you're going to if you're going for more than 24 hours. So thank you for being so honest, um, at least the 20 of you. And uh, and I'm happy to take questions, and then I'll give them to Dara if they're hard. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Thanks. We do have a few minutes for questions and answers. Uh, A few ground rules about that. Uh, Please wait to be called on. Uh, When you are called on, please wait for the microphone, which will be brought to you. Uh, so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online, welcome audience watching online, uh, can hear your question. Uh, and then if you might announce your name and even better affiliation so people can know a little bit about...
1: And whether um, or not you're a sex offender.
0: <laughs> no. Um, we are not mandatory reporters, so we are not going to have to send those cards to a police department. I, um, no one signed them. The uh, And after that, we will uh, be having lunch upstairs. I'll give you more uh, information on that afterward so um, questions for either of our speakers um, ma'am yes and the microphone is coming
3: so I'm Diane Redleaf and I work on uh, child protection registers so I found this fascinating I just wanted to ask you about the element of selective um, enforcement of these laws and um, how that plays out um, and also ask you for your I mean, it seems like a lot of this is de- about dehumanization of the uh, of the uh, offender. And um, apart from that, what are your ideas in terms? And I think telling the stories obviously has an eff- effect on humanizing. Uh, but do- what other strategies do you recommend, other than thinking about the purposes of these laws?
1: Uh, you've you've seen my entire strategy. It's uh, talking to people, telling stories. I wanted, I I once spoke at a conference that was trying to change the sex offender laws. And I said, how about we have sex offender of the week? You know, like of somebody who did something great that week, who's on the sex offender registry, I'm just like, I don't know. And I'm like, how about thank a sex offender? You know, like a guy who fixed your your tire and he happened to be on the sex offender registry. Like that didn't get off the ground. I don't have any um, really non-goofy ideas other than, uh, the thing that I think might change people in the end is that this registry is reaching, getting close to a million people, and it's sort of like when everybody started intermarrying, like like everybody has some Jew in their family, I'm Jewish, I can say this, some Jew married somebody in their family, and it's like, oh, okay, they're just like the rest of everybody has some Republican in their family, everybody has a Democrat in their family somewhere, and it starts to although perhaps not in the last election, humanize um, the other. And I think that eventually everybody is going to know somebody on the registry um, who they feel is much better than the label that has been given them and doesn't deserve this outrageously um, walking dead type of existence. And that might, you know, start fostering
3: a, a pushback.
0: Any comments?
3: I think that when we think about selective enforcement, uh, we tend to think about it in terms of people committing crimes and not being noticed by law enforcement because of the nature of the registry. What you know, it, it creates a class of low-hanging fruit of people who the onus is on them to to go forth and and re-register, and that makes it easier for law enforcement to track them. I think it's much more a problem, as Lenora, Lenora mentioned, as of when you create this class of low-hanging fruit and force more people to be actively registering themselves. You reduce the extent to which you're able to identify people who have not yet committed crimes, but who might be committing crimes in future, because you're monitoring retroactively as opposed to proactively. So I think that that is anything where you're creating a class of low-hanging fruit where you can get people for violating the terms of their registration rather than getting people for engaging in the underlying crime is going to create an incentive for law enforcement to hit their numbers rather than engaging in the hard investigative work. But I think that that's probably the way to the the risk that is greater than just selective enforcement.
0: Yeah, I. Would assume that there is some um, uh, selectivity or, or or some unevenness in uh, some of j- judges' discretion originally, because it's been mentioned in one or two of the anecdotes that judges seem to have some discretion about whether or not to hit uh, people and 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 for how long. But where m- much more of the selective enforcement would come in, of course, is as Dara mentioned, is in these later. Um, uh, failures to do the paperwork correctly and once again a couple of the stories that we heard uh, sounded as if the person was at risk of another 20 years and then but but no they you know, had uh, either they had a good lawyer or a family behind them or else they could show that they were a, a generally good person and so they negotiated the 20 years down to two months with uh, the lawyer. E- yeah. extension that that reminds me of so many aspects of our system, plea bargaining and various other things, in which it all comes down to a black box of discretion of uh, who you're negotiating with on the part of the uh, criminal justice system, and in which uh, the, the possibilities for selectivity uh, can be very scary. Now. As libertarians, we need to watch out here, because the prescription of uh, there must be no negotiation. We're so upset by the black box that everyone must get the potential sentence so that we get equality of of punishment leads, in this case, to a very strange and scary place in which uh, the paperwork thing always winds up in the longest possible sense. So I don't have a good answer. I just suspect that a a, a block-hole quantity of subjectivity and selectivity is is packed into that black box of negotiating over the paperwork violations. Next question. Um, uh, Yes, sir, in the second row.
2: Thank you. Uh, Very interesting discussions. My name is Mike Irocious, no affiliation. Um, are there many women on the sex offender list, and is there a different threshold for women versus men?
1: Um, I don't know the numbers. I think it's overwhelmingly male. But I, you know, I have another story. A woman was at a party and touched some guy. I don't know. It was just ended up. She's in prison for life. I, I, there are. I'm sure there are some women on there, but it's not as much. There was just a case that I wrote about. If you look on Reason Today, there's a, there's a twenty. 21-year-old who had sex with an 18-year-old, but she was the student teacher, and so she's facing um, some years in prison, even though they're both of age. But that's that.
0: The extension in some states of the registry to those who patronize prostitutes opens up a somewhat horrifying possibility that uh, one or two jumps later, they could be sweeping in large numbers of women under that heading. Uh, It's just, I'm trying to see where this is all headed if if it gets more punitive each year. Well,
1: it must be getting more something because the numbers keep going up. I mean, you know, for something that really, California was the first place to have a registry and they're ahead of everybody. You always got to look to see what's happening next. Uh, They start in the 40s, but basically everybody else was in the 90s. And so to have almost a million people is fast.
0: (laughs) Okay, more questions. Um, Yes, the the gentleman, the, the fifth row there,
1: Nope, not not um, you. I'm sorry, uh-uh. no, Count behind you.
0: <laughs> Try, Number two. <laughs> trying to get to the people who are harder for me to see. It's 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 that way. Yeah, the uh, um.
2: the issue of divorce. You may unless you mention that in the very first few minutes. The what? Uh, this shows up in divorce issues. Issue. There's a phrase called "said" uh, or sexual abuse in divorce. So pretty much, there's nothing you can if you. If the woman makes an accusation against the man, it's pretty much impossible to defend against. And it got so common in divorce proceedings that the judges began saying something along the lines of, if you make the accusation after the divorce, after some paperwork sort of began it, then there's something, you know, probably suspicious about it. But it really, the whole issue is ex parte kind of proceedings where you make a claim and the other, there isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be any kind of proof because you're trying to avoid something that everyone thinks is so terrible. Uh, And the other thing I was, uh, in the same sense, uh, you weren't able to answer the percentage on male, female. Uh, How about racial percentages?
1: Uh, Good question. Dara? (laughs) I have
3: no idea.
2: I think
0: a lot of the basic questions have not been studied.
1: Wow, did everybody hear that? I mean, everybody think, Uh, you know.
0: Yeah, that was Emily Yaffe's comment was that the the registry is highly disproportionately men of color. And um, on the question of... Uh, false accusations of sexual misconduct in divorce is certainly something that everyone connected with with divorce law knows a lot about. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in the absence of a resulting prosecution, that would not itself get the wrongly accused uh, husband or father on the sex offender list. There would have to be an intervening conviction of something, right?
3: As far as I know, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, more questions? Yes, you've been waiting in the, the center here. And if... If people could identify themselves, uh, we're John probably- Bush
4: could do, ask, do tellcom sort of an independent blogger, retired. Um, one thing that worries me is that people could be framed on the Internet. Um, there have been cases where people's Wi-Fi has been hijacked with child pornography, or a hacker could put child pornography on your cloud. Um, there are all kinds of ways that people could be framed and put on a sex offender registry when they didn't even commit a crime. And... There's a the, the judge in Michigan that that idea. Um, he seemed to feel that using the internet was a privilege and you use it at your own risk. You know there there used to be a there used to be a doctrine that possession of child pornography was an absolute liability offense, even if somebody else if you got it from a virus. Um, I don't think that's true anymore, but there was a case in Arizona in 2006 where a, a person was convicted when he claimed a virus had put trying, he claimed he wasn't responding, um, there's this idea that y- you take the risk and you've got to behave in a way to shelter the public, even if something happens to you, you there's, there's no presumption of innocence if you behave gratuitously online and if something happens and you're framed for something. I think that's a danger, too, That and you may see more of this, um, foreign... Enemies could exploit it if you stop and think about it. I wonder if you could comment on that possibility.
1: Um, Yeah, you've succeeded in making me terrified. I think it would be very easy to send somebody an unsolicited sext or um, porn, and uh, you know, I don't even know if you can delete it and say, "Oh, I didn't want it," and I deleted it immediately. Yes, but it was on your computer, and was it not your computer? Yeah, that's my computer, but somebody sent. Yeah, well, now you're going to jail. So the whole idea of the the, the fact that you know the fact that the internet exists and that there's all sorts of stuff going back and forth and I have no idea how to even spam filter my thing so don't get an idea out there but who knows what somebody could put on your computer I really don't know it's very terrifying
0: there's a um Uh, A lot of Cato's work in criminal justice um, uh, has returned to the theme of mens rea and the fact that in order to convict someone of a crime, uh, the the state ought to be able to show that they had uh, guilty consciousness and intent. And, of course, in a great many of the online misconduct laws, uh, it's quite straightforward to prove that that, that people were interacting over a substantial period on purpose. But um, insisting on mens rea would help to... um, uh, resolve or improve some of the laws in which simple possession uh, without any evidence of intent.
1: Right, uh, or a 19-year-old who has sex with a girl he thinks is 17, there's, you know, he's, there's no intent to... Issues I, of I, mis-
0: mistake of fact, mistake of law, which have their own... Le- Law, long and boring legal histories, although so, not, not boring alone. to those who are prosecuted, obviously.
3: But I do so, think that this is one, thinking about it in terms of someone did a malicious and illegal, like, and clearly wrong thing, and that person just happens to not be the person who's getting hauled in for it, mm-hmm. is that's an easy case. Right. Um, the I think that this is why, you know, the, the focus has been in reforming the sex offender registry on teenagers in large extent teenagers and children because these are cases in which there aren't disputes of fact um and it's not you know no one is being coerced into no like the question isn't children who are being coerced into doing something it's where do we draw the line between knowingly exploiting someone else and doing something that you did not understand was a crime that was a crime that created a victim. And that's where I think the, you know, there's generally a need to clarify Men's Rea, but especially in the context of the registry where it's a permanent sanction. Thinking about the cases in which it's not that someone committed a crime and that person was you, you know, it's it's not the Jean Valjean case. It's the people who, may, who did something that they can agree was wrong but may not want to do it again.
1: Wait, and can I just add one of the things that you reminded me of is people who do something wrong and may not know that it's wrong. Um, I don't know what percent, but I've spoken to the moms of several young men with um, developmental disabilities, who feel like they're seven or ten years old, and they go online, and they're now they're 20, and they're looking at pictures of seven-year-olds having sex because that's sort of the age they are in their head, and they have no idea that this is wrong, and they too are arrested with no heed um, of what's you know they the fact that they are mentally disabled and that they might not even know that this is wrong or might not even realize that 20 is different from seven, and um, I've heard these moms speak and they talk about how all the money they've been saving their whole lives so that when they're gone, their son will have a decent place to live in a group home or with somebody to take care of them has gone instead to lawyer's fees. And uh, and some of the kids have gone to prison nonetheless. And I was I was telling Diane this story today. I heard from one mom whose kid had autism, found out, you know, something with, he was looking at some, some illegal images online. And he ended, you know, the prosecutor didn't care. I mean, he has a, he's a live one uh, wriggling on the, on the hook. And, and he was sent to prison. And as a, a child or a young man with autism, the thing that hurt him most was exactly what we're dealing with here, was these bright lights. And when he was going crazy, they strapped him into a resistance chair. And he's sitting there like this as his punishment for having autism and looking at in line at something he didn't realize he shouldn't look at.
0: We have run out of time. On that uh, note, and <laughs> I wish on a different note than that. But the, um, before I thank our uh, speakers, uh, a couple of bits of logistics. Um, uh, our lunch will be held on the second floor, um, second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, uh, up the spiral staircase. Uh, if you are looking for restrooms, they are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. Um, in the meantime, please join me in thanking Lenora Skenazy and Dora Lind.